Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. At last, I'm on the brink of success. Before this night is over, I will successfully animate an eight-foot-tall pickle. I will give it the gift of a human life. (laughs) At university, they said I was mad, Igor. But you are mad, Dr. Wolf Picklestein. Ow! It's Dr. Pickle Wolfstein. How long have you worked for me? Since yesterday, Doctor. Robert Half sent me over, remember? I'm just temping here, until my experimental theater group... Ow! Enough! Take the lightning rod and go stand out there. What if I'm struck by lightning? It's a lightning rod. That's what it's supposed to... (sighs) (gasps) It happened. It's breathing. My pickle, it's alive. Look, Igor, it's trying to speak. Thirsty. It's saying it's thirsty. Ow! Do I look like I can't hear what my own giant reanimated pickle is saying? Get it some water. Meanwhile, rise, my enormous briny friend. Rise! You must make me a lady pickle. I am a living being. I must have company. For crying out loud, what am I, okay, Pickle Cupid? Go out and terrorize the villagers for a few hours, and then we'll talk about your needs. As you wish, Master. Excuse me, Dr. Wolf Pickle, I I mean, Pickle Wolfstein, I'm concerned. Concerned about what? What about the morality? What about the ethics of giving human life to a giant pickle? That is a... Profound question, Igor. Let me see. Where did I put the handbook for pickle animation ethics? Oh, here it is. Ow! I'm a mad scientist, not some lame guest on On Being with Krista Tippett. I don't have to think about ethics. Now it's time for a whole show about pickling and fermenting, which is the new pickling. And now his high school girlfriend was Kim Chi, Colin McEnroe. Yeah. I lost track of Kim Chi. I tried to catch up with her on Facebook. She's nowhere to be found. I keep just I keep getting information about pickled cabbage every time I try to find my high school girlfriend. It's very frustrating. All right, so we are going to be talking about pickling today. And when we say pickling, well, I mean, in fact, part of our quest will be to figure out what it is that we mean when we say pickling, because pickling can mean many things. But we have uh, many wonderful guides to lead us through this underworld. Chief among them, Lucy Norris, is the author of Pickled preserving a word, world of tastes and traditions. And she runs the, bro- the blog. I'm having a lot of trouble talking for some reason. She runs the blog, brinylifewordpress.com. She joins us from KUOW in Seattle. Lucy Norris, welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. So we are, I mean, we're going to go plunging back into the past. We're going to look at the traditions of pickles. You spent some time as effectively a cultural historian in New York City trying to uh, figure out all of its pickle traditions, including the the sort of ur pickles of the Lower East Side, but all the other um, groups that came in and brought their pickling traditions. But before we do that, maybe we can just start in the present moment. There's something going on here. There's something 
In the words of Buffalo Springfield, there has, there's something happening here. I, you look around, and there are all, the, all these pickled products that didn't exist before and, and, and new pickling techniques. And you go to places like the Pacific Northwest, where you are, or, or, or New York City, or any kind of other food mecca, and, and you're starting to see this fabulous array of kind of, you know, I mean, some of those things are kind of spooky <laughs> Spooky looking. But so what's going on here? Why are we doing so much pickling? First of all, am I making this up or is are we in the middle of some pickling slash fermenting slash food preservation vogue? I think it's been happening for about 10 years, this pickle renaissance, actually. Um, you know, I think people were kind of looking at all the different products on the shelves and they were starting to think about what was in their food and whether or not they should trust other people to make their food for them. And they were looking at different health benefits of varieties of ingredients and, you know, this whole back to the land and urban gardening and, you know, growing your own food movement. And and all of that sort of culminates into this idea around preserving your identity and your family traditions and really trying to reach back to an area that or a place and time when it seems so simple. And, you know, so we have these ideas around food and what's good for our bodies. And we're trying to take care of the earth. And pickles sort of just kind of capture the imagination around all those notions. But when we say pickles, we're really talking about, we're not just talking about a cucumber pickle, right? We're talking about a million different things. Oh, yeah. Kimchi, which is a fermented mixed pickle, mainly cabbage, but really anything can can be made into kimchi. Um, of course, we have cucumber pickles and kosher dills and that sort of thing. Beets, uh, you know, olives, you know, they're they're a brined product, but that is essentially pickled. Um, you know, various Indian pickles that have mostly an oil base, but do have some acid. Uh, you know, there's so many different types of pickles all across the world. And, and you, we're starting to see, I mean, there are some really elaborate uh, artisanal places like uh, there's one in Berkeley where uh, I look at their blog and it's like I'm looking at some other form of life from outer space or something. They're uh, taking con- combining ingredients all in all kinds of exciting ways to create this world of artisanal food that almost didn't even exist anymore or at least never existed all in one place. They're bringing together maybe a Japanese tradition with a Jewish tradition or something like that. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, too bad it's not scratch and sniff because I'm sure some of these pickles taste or and smell pretty uh, exciting. <laughs> <laughs> So um, so we're talking to Lucy Norris, and one of the things we want to talk a little bit about here, first of all, we want to welcome your phone calls if you have pickle questions. We will have pickle answers answers for you. Lucy will have most of them, but we'll be adding a few other guests as we go along here and acquainting you even more deeply with the world of artisanal pickles and pickling and fermentation and stuff like that. So if you have questions, the number to call is 860-275-7266. I'm going to give it out again in just a few minutes because we're going to kind of delve into a piece of tape right now, but the number is 860-275. Five seven two six six. Lucy's going to be talking a little bit about the history of pickling, but we also tracked down uh, in uh, Bristol, England, Sue Shepherd, who's the author of the author of Pickled, Potted, and Canned: How the Art and Science of Food Preserving Changed the World. So, uh, let's do a little bit of tape of uh, a conversation I had on Monday with Sue Shepherd. Sue Shepard is the author of Pickled, Potted, and Canned, How the Art and Science of Food Preserving Changed the World. She's also the author of Seeds of Fortune. She's worked uh, for many years uh, in uh, England in television. Sue Shepard, so great to have you on the show. Let's begin with that very notion. In fact, the notion that's contained 
in your title, the first stirrings of pickling and other kinds of preserving really are the ways in which a civilization answers the question, what if I want to eat this later? Uh, so, so, so how important is this in, in the early, I mean, obviously in terms of an empire extending its reach, armies want to be able to march with food. In what other ways would pickling and other kinds of preserving be important in, in the first stirrings of civilization? Well, obviously the most important thing is that it meant people could stay in one place, which in the past, of course, they were nomadic and had to travel following the food wherever it was or was moving. You know, they had to follow herds or find food just like animals did. Uh, Once they were able to preserve food, it meant they could actually stay in one place. They could raise their food in the summer, preserve it to get them through the winter. Conversely, it also meant, as you rightly said, they could get up and go. So that was important if you were um, a civilization that wanted to expand yourself. It meant that you could send people off on long voyages in ships with preserved food. You could send armies off. I mean, the Romans, as you probably know, preserved enormous amount of food in order to get them moving immense distances where they could go and conquer new lands. I guess it also meant the reverse, too, which is that you could eat something that wasn't grown right where you were standing. In other words, exactly. if, if you wanted a cucumber from uh, India, uh, you could eat it uh, in some distance away if you could pickle it, right? That would, yes, that, of course, would have been much later on when you started trading food. But yes, certainly. And it's something, of course, we're still able to enjoy, is being able to get food sent from all over the world in preserved state. Now, luxury food. Um, do, you have, do you have a sense or a, a guess at when the first pickling, the first thing that we would call pickling, and we should say it's a pretty broad term. I mean, a lot of things get called pickling that maybe don't fit some uh, cuisine science's idea of what is pickling as opposed to salting or fermenting or, or, or whatever. But just in terms of you know how you would conversationally use pickling, do you have any sense of which civilization did it first or how early it started? Well, funny enough, first of all, when I, um, I first had the title for this book, it kind of sounded okay to us in England. And then somebody, my American publisher pointed out that actually that, that it's three terms for being drunk, yeah. <laughs> certainly pickled and potted. Yeah. And the word pickle actually apparently is a Danish word, meaning brine. Mm. But it's become such a broad term that when you said you want to talk about pickling, I wasn't sure whether we were going to be talking about pickling food in vinegar or pickles that we eat or... It's a word that's used in all sorts of different ways, which makes it really, really interesting. But, but mostly it's about putting food in some form of a chemical and, keep, and so that it keeps well, which is actually, strangely, used almost everywhere in the world in some way or another. Yeah, I was astonished in your book at the number of different things that are pickled. Yeah, they're most, I mean, pickling, when we talk about pickling in, in vinegar or brine, that's salt water, that tends to be vegetable matter of some or fruits. But surprisingly, quite a lot of meat is also pickled. Sure, and um, well, actually you, you mentioned in the book that uh, the Japanese pickle slugs. They do um, a sea slug, which is a kind of mm. cucumber. It's not, a, it's not actually an animal or a mollusk or whatever. But yeah, you can, um, you can pickle um, pig's trotters, are very popular in Central Europe, brawn and ox tongue and the sort of bits that actually one wouldn't really want to eat in any other way. Because one has to remember that... A, in the sort of later period, a lot of preserving is done by the poorer people, the peasants, and therefore they would pickle the less attractive meats, the ones that weren't expensive. You'd never pickle, for example, a leg of lamb or a nice piece of best beef, because that would be a terrible waste of a nice, good, expensive piece of meat. 
So yeah, it, be, it became, in other words, if you had something else, something that was edible but not necessarily desirable, you might yeah. want to postpone eating it anyway uh, yeah. and, and preserve it for later. Well, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up uh, the herring, uh, which does appear uh, in your book. First of all, when we say pickled herring, are we still using pickling more or less the same way? Herring is pickled in, in, in various different ways, as you no doubt know. Uh, one of the reasons it's pickled is because it's a very oily fish, mm-hmm. and that's you can't dry it like cod or the white fishes. Traditionally, white fish was dried in the in the wind or in the sun if you had the right sort of conditions. But when you have an oily fish like the herring, it doesn't work. So they started to pickle it, and um, that meant basically you had to get the moisture out of it by salting it, and then you would either put it in brine and pickle it that way, or you could use vinegar, though it's not that common, or you smoked it. So there were the various ways of doing it, and, and it is very still a very popular way of, of eating herring, isn't it? I mean, we all eat kippers and, and roll mops, and it's done in all sorts of different different ways. Well, some of us do anyway. And and actually, I, I may be um, misrecalling this from, from your book, but my recollection is, and I don't even know what century we're in when we're talking about this, but that apparently it was common at one point to have a barrel of pickled herring, which apparently oh, also did not smell very good, right? Yeah, uh, and that would be put in barrels of brine. You know, I mean, enormous, fantastic quantities of herring were caught. Unfortunately, they, there aren't fantastic quantities of herring left, but in those days they were. We're talking about anything from the Middle Ages. And this is up in the North, the North Sea, in the sort of Scandinavian and Dutch, Netherlands, those sorts of areas, and the Baltic Sea, of course. Massive quantities of this fish, so you'd stuff them into barrels filled with brine. And they kept extraordinarily well. But remember, they probably didn't taste that good. One mustn't get too romantic about ancient forms of preserving or pickling. I don't think you and I would want to sit down to many of them done in that way at the time. No, they're, they're, I, I don't know when we would mark it, but it's probably fairly recently that, uh, in terms of the overall stretch of history, that pickling became a kind of desirable cuisine, you know, something that people would salivate over. I mean, it was a means to an end for most of the period that you're chronicling, right? Yeah, but actually one of the things I found most interesting is that when you get a traditional form of preserving, and that depended very much on the climate and the soil type and so on of of the part of the world, that as it became something that was done regular on a regular basis, it it sort of began to enter the traditional cuisine. Mm. It became part of of the culture, if you like. And so if you ask someone in Korea what is their favorite taste, they'll say sour. Or in Japan, you know, they like sour food, which we in the West don't like. In fact, I think I was once filming in America about the different cultured foods, and I was fascinated when I was up in Minneapolis that um, they eat sauerkraut a lot up there, but they add lots of sugar to it because now they're Americans. They've got a very sweet taste. But uh, their forebears would would have liked that very sour taste of pickled cabbage. Yeah, and I think also, you're right, that, that these um, indigenous tastes build up, and, and they, they are probably connected in many cases to the way in which something could be preserved based oh, on, on climate. I think they were absolute, that, that is fundamental. So the Norwegians, I think, have a dish called lutefisk, which is some kind of preserved fish, which apparently nobody else in the world can even stand to be near. <laughs> no, well, they like, they like rotted food. I mean, because, and part of that is it's not really rotted, but they, they have a particular kind of pH in their soil, which means that they can bury 
their fish and this acid in the soil, I'm not a chemist, but I know sort of roughly that the acid in the soil will, will sort of preserve the fish. And that's why, you know, grave lacs, do you have that in America? Oh, yes, we do, we do. Well, grave means grave, it means buried, so it's buried fish. And you'll find food buried in the ground and fermented, which again is a form of pickling in all sorts of parts of the world. Well, the, the Chinese do it, right? Isn't that how they make the 100-year-old eggs or 1,000-year-old well, eggs? Well, yes. I, that, it's interesting about 100-year-old. I never actually ever found anyone who said that it was true, but it's a lovely idea, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's what they call a preserved egg. I mean, it's, I think that's what they call a preserved egg now. But, yeah. um, and, and, you know, this, these traditions are fascinating. I, I, in the book, I wrote about um, a kind of pickled vegetables called kimchi in Korea. And I wrote this book a long time ago, and I wrote that in Korea they still have what they call a kimchi day, when everybody takes a day off and goes and prepares kimchi and bottles it all up to keep for the next year. And um, only at Christmas I was talking to somebody, and they said, oh, yes, they're still all doing it. You know, it's still very much a tradition. So I think that's rather nice. Uh, Sue Shepard, just, I want to just once again dart way back into the distant past, because another thing that becomes clear here is that in the early stirrings of food preservation, whether we're talking about pickling or salting or, or other kinds of food preservation, it wasn't anything that people took casually. I, I think, once again, I have it from your book that in ancient Egypt, the knowledge of food preservation was almost considered kind of a sacred art, right? It was like this thing that was only entrusted to certain kinds of people. It was a, an incredibly important thing to know about. In some cultures, it probably was, you know, it was regarded as rather like medicine was, as, as something that only particularly special members of the society would have the knowledge of. But I don't think that that was universal. And I think an awful lot of food preserving actually was something that was done by trial and error and was handed down from generation to generation and just kind of gradually... I'm sure there were an awful lot of bad accidents and people died of, of, of various poisonings, but on the whole, they worked it out. But I tell you, the other thing that I feel quite strongly about, and, and I think I, I mentioned the book, is that, you know, with all this business, global warming and, and you know, all the, the wars and the troubles and so on, we still, we're still experiencing in life today. I think a lot of the old traditional methods, you know, the ones that our grandmothers used, I'm not talking about freezing, which of course requires electricity. I think a lot of these things are going to stick around because people are, are, feel the need to be able to produce their own food in troubled times and to have some food preserved on their, in their store cupboard when things get really difficult. I mean, I know you're having terrible weather problems over there. Mm -hmm. Yes, we are. you've probably read about the terrible weather problems, quite different ones we're having over here with flooding. Mm -hmm. And there are people literally, you know, stuck in their homes for weeks. They can't get out. That's very reminiscent of a kind of situation that people had centuries ago when they had to use the food they had stored at home. And I'm a very optimistic person, but I think you have to be practical. And I think it's wonderful that we still have the ability to preserve food to cope with, with the situations we may be facing in the future. Let's not forget them. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, Sue Shepard, the book is uh, Pickled, Potted, and Canned. I think pickled and potted uh, refer to getting drunk, and canned is what happens to you at work uh, if you show up drunk too often. But uh, pickled, <laughs> potted, and canned, how the art and science of food preserving changed the world. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye.
So there you have it. If you watch The Walking Dead, imagine how happy those people would be if they had more pickled things to get through the zombie apocalypse. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that part of it. So Lucy Norris is with us now. That was Sue Shepard. Lucy Norris is the author of Pickled, Preserving a World of Tastes and Traditions. Uh, and uh, as I say, she runs the blog, brainylife.wordpress.com. So Lucy Norris, you listened to some of that uh, or all of that and um, help us out with a little bit more pickled history. I know one of the things that you encountered was uh, a possibly apocryphal story from ancient Egypt about how pickling might have been accidentally discovered, at least by one part, one group within one civilization, right? Somebody dropped something in something? Yeah, I think there were, um, I, I can't remember the source of it now, but it was, uh, there were vessels found in some archaeological dig where they found food uh, that had been, looked like it had been preserved somehow in different uh, types of brine liquid, which she mentioned, which was like a salty sort of water, and then uh, possibly preserving lemons, which still is being done. Uh, it's a very uh, traditional method of preserving lemons over in the Middle East. Um, also in honey, uh, preserving things in honey, uh, which would be very similar to our sort of jams and jellies, which is not really pickled, but definitely preserved. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, um, you know, and, you know, my thinking was, as Sue mentioned, is was this a happy accident? You know, and certainly because uh, if food rots too much or, um, you know, different harmful bacteria get in your food and you eat it, then you'll have, you know, problems with botulism and E. coli and other things. So <laughs> there is definitely a right way and a wrong way to do it. But the right way is rather simple. If you follow all the steps. And we're going to talk a little bit about the right way as we go along here today. But I want to talk a little bit also about your experience, especially your experience in New York. You know, we talked at the beginning, Lucy, about how this is uh, this golden age of pickling, this pickling renaissance, you know, where mm -hmm. and, and certainly in these meccas of artisanal food, whether it's Brooklyn or Portland or Seattle or San Francisco or, or, or wherever, uh, you know, you're seeing these fascinating small batch operations that are, that are really kind of hands on. On the other hand, one of the ways as I understand it, that you got interested in and involved in pickling was looking at kind of a dying pickling situation, uh, civilization. Mm. If, if not a dying one, certainly we know that a century ago in New York City there were 200 family-run pickle shops. If you've ever seen the movie Crossing Delancey, Pete Rigard plays the pickle man. Um, now, half of those places were, like Crossing Delancey, on the Lower East Side where wholesale cucumbers uh, could be bought. And, and, and so you'd have these these massive or, or not massive, but sort of family-owned pickling operations and pick, for, for basically the cucumber pickle and some other stuff. And so, Lucy, my sense is, and you're more the cultural historian here, um, that, that a lot of those either have died out or are struggling to stay uh, in existence. Yeah, around the time that I started doing the interviews for the New York Food Museum, which is not a place, uh, it's been really responsible for the uh, annual New York City International Pickle Days that started back in 2001. Leading up to that uh, first event, um, I was interviewing people from all over the world who were either living in New York, um, ha either had some sort of a, a mainly a Jewish Lower East Side sort of uh, family history related to pickles, but I was also interested in the just the change of the landscape in in the Lower East Side around you know the late nineties two thousands and we uh, really found a dearth of information in the municipal archives um, around all these businesses and at the time Gus's was still open it was down there um, 
and uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of who else was just starting up. The Pickle Guys were just starting up. Uh, Steve Leibowitz had United Pickle up in uh, the Bronx, and I interviewed him. Um, heard a lot of stories about Saul Kaplan, Kaplan's Pickles. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if anybody's been around longer than 50 years or so listening to this, they remember some of these names. I mean, Steve Leibowitz is definitely still around, and his family's involved with the pickling industry big time. Uh, but I interviewed um, a man named Tim Baker, who was actually responsible for Gus's Pickles. And, you know, I'd go down there on a Sunday and people would just be lined up around the block, you know, with their families and, you know, getting their pickled tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and various things. And it, and it was really a gathering place. And, um, you know, people would share stories or, they, you know, they were just there to shop and get out of there. But, uh, you know, the the landscape in the Lower East Side was really changing, and it's continued to change as many New York neighborhoods. But just because the food history there in the Lower East Side was so uh, rich, uh, the New York Food Museum was really interested in, in really learning those stories from the families and the various people who had lived there once. Um, because many of them were Yiddish-speaking. They kept notes on handwritten cards. You know, there wasn't really any records. So it was really going out and talking to family members about their memories. And then it just grew from there. You know, it, obviously food is culture. Uh, and and so this does seem to be wrapped up in or did seem to be wrapped up in, in, in Jewish identity. And and I, yeah. I, I wonder if you were able to sort of, I mean, I, and I think once once you have something like that, you have a food item that's inextricably wound up in a cultural identity, then then you have people who really have a sense of what sort of what it what it is and what it isn't you know in other words what's a real jewish dill pickle and and what isn't did you ever figure out what the what the sort of aesthetics of that (laughs) is i mean if there are people lining up at at gus's to get those pickles and they're not lining up to get pickles somewhere else did you ever figure out what the difference was Oh, my gosh. Well, that was an an ongoing debate. Uh, some people said it had to do with New York City water. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people said it had to do it had to be a kosher pickle in order for it to be a, a real authentic pickle. Um, you know, some people had their favorites. Uh, you know, it, it's just it just depended on what their history was. But, you know, really what I love so much about doing the research was that people would light up. They would always spawn a memory about a favorite aunt or an uncle or a childhood memory or a taste that they'd never forget or a time that they were happy. Uh, You know, of course, there were sad stories. There were stories about people having to leave their homes and move to a new place because they could never go back. And that food memory was preserved in that taste of, of a pickle. And so that was the one thing that they could carry with them. If they couldn't bring their home, they could bring their family and they could bring their food memories. And so that was really the lesson that I learned from the research is that people love to talk about their their shared history and they love to talk about their own family recipes. And the word sort of authenticity around pickles is really up to the family. You know, each family has their own taste and there's thousands of ways you can make uh, a pickle. Um, and it's really up to, you know, sort of beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. All right. So um, I guess we should take a break here because we're running long and I want to get the other guys involved here. You're going to meet uh, Stu Gollum and uh, Dan Rosenberg in just a second here. They are both uh, in the artisanal pickle business. So let's take a break. We'll come back with more pickles. To see a pickle college. 
I'm Bryce Shivers. And I'm Lisa Eversman. And we can pickle that. Oh my god, these chickens are laying so many eggs, I'm freaking out. We, we can, can pickle, pickle that. that! We did it. Pickled eggs. Pickles always cost a nickel. We can pickle that. We can pickle anything. All right, it's a little bit of Portlandia. Uh, most of you know the sketch. So uh, we're going to go to, um, first of all, Lucy Norris is uh, still with us. She's going to straighten out all kinds of things for us. And, and I want to talk to everybody as we go along here, too, about people's kind of emotional connection uh, with pickling and with pickles and the pickled products. Because there's a, a certain percentage, uh, I should get this as, as alliterative as possible, a pickle percentage that prefers no pickles. There's, there's certain people who just don't even want, I mean, if you go out to lunch, four people go out to lunch, there's going to be one or two people who don't even want their pickles. We want to figure out why that is, how that happens. But we have so much more to talk about. And so let me, let me bring aboard here uh, to join us, Stu Gollum. He's the owner and uh, pickle maker at Moonbrine in Portland, Oregon. Uh, also with us, Dan Rosenberg. He's the owner of Real Pickles in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Uh, Stu Gollum, I'm going to start with you because your story kind of, uh, as I understand it, does bridge the two worlds we're talking about. Perhaps uniquely, your story begins on the Lower East Side uh, and, if not ends, stops for a while in Portland. Tell us about that. Hello, Colin. Hi, Hello, Stu. Dan. It's been a long time. Hi, anyway, Dan. and Lucy, hello. <laughs> yes. My story begins exactly where Lucy left off there, because I was living in New York City about 10 blocks from Gus's in the 90s. And I used to go down there and buy pickles beyond, you know, my imagination. And I was a school teacher then, and I was just buying so many pickles from that guy. It was always Tim Baker putting them in those courts, and they were like eight bucks. And I would finish two courts on my 10-block walk home. <laughs> so I just started making them myself, just mainly out of affordability. And Tim Baker, he would give me no information. It's funny that Lucy was saying he talked to her. He was a character. But those were the days. And then Moonbrine was born there in our tiny little apartment in uh, the East Village. And then we moved back to Boston for a lot of other reasons and have done Moonbrine. Did Boonbrine there for eight years commercially, and now out here in crazy Portland for almost three. So how accurate? Sort of unbelievable. Yeah, how I accurate? Believe I'm still talking about it. <laughs> Stu, how accurate is the is the sketch from Portland from Portlandia? Is in fact Portland some kind of epicenter uh, of wild, inventive pickling? Uh, it's spot on. Portlandia is exactly what's like out here for everything. Pickle <laughs> spot, yes, it's, yes. And uh, it's just funny because we have always thought pickles were fun and funny, and that's why we did it. Mm-hmm. And I just make pickles because I think they taste great. I'm addicted to salt, and we thought trying the business would be, you know, a fun and funny adventure. It's been more, way more than that and crazy and difficult and impossible. But people love pickles everywhere, like the woman who was on from England and Lucy, they know people love pickles. It's just every type of person. I have a little shop here. I talk to people every day. And, uh, you know, everybody just, they love the salt. But, yeah, Portlandia is uh, pretty much spot on. 
And so, Dan Rosenberg, I heard you greet Stu Gollum. So, Dan, yes. you, you guys know each other? From way back, yes, when Stu used to be here in, Boston, out in, here in Massachusetts. We've been fellow pickle makers together for quite a while. So, so pickle makers tend to know each other, and, and even though Tim Baker wouldn't tell Stu anything, you guys maybe do swap some ideas back and forth when pickle makers get together? Yeah, I think we've traded some ideas. We're, um, we make real pickles. We make fermented pickles. We're using the, the traditional process, as does Stu. And um, certainly I'm not as familiar with pickling, uh, modern vinegar pickling, but certainly in the um, the circles of people trying to bring back this traditional fermentation process. There's been there's been lots of sharing of ideas and and helping each other out. I think part of it is that there we're all kind of in a way doing a lot of trial trial and error in figuring out our products and our process because it's a process that really went by the wayside and um, there hasn't been until you know just a few the last few years there hasn't been much in writing about the process at all. Um, not a lot of examples to follow. So. So, um, and, and so, Dan, when you talk about fermentation, and maybe Lucy can help out with this a little bit, too, but when you talk about fermentation, I, I've been trying to understand this, and I've been on a couple of sites that talked about lacto-fermentation. I don't mm -hmm. know whether that's different from what you're doing. but nope. So how, how is fermentation different from pickling? Yeah. So I think, of, as you mentioned before, people can think about pickling in a variety of different ways, but I think about pickling in sort of a broader sense of um, that encompasses modern vinegar pickling and traditional fermentation, lacto-fermentation, as you say. It is, it is the same thing. Um, so making pickles with either method, I think, dates back quite a while, but um, vinegar pickling has really been the predominant way of making pickles just in, you know, within the last century or so, as I understand it. And using the fermentation process has been really, it was really the, the most common way of, of pickling vegetables, at least, um, for, for many, many centuries, really all around the world. And the difference is the way the, the fermentation process works, people call it lacto-fermentation or lactic acid fermentation. Um, essentially, you're depending on naturally occurring beneficial bacteria or, or cultures um, it's the same kind that you use to make yogurt from milk, for example. So a lot of people are familiar with acidophilus, and that's a particular strain of, of lactic acid-producing bacteria. And that's along the lines of what's the same kind of, of, of friendly bacteria that you use in this, in this vegetable fermentation process. And so so you're, de you're depending on those, on those beneficial bacteria to break down the natural sugars in the vegetables and produce lactic acid. And that's, um, so that's the way traditional pickles are made to taste sour and the, the way that they're preserved um, in contrast to modern vinegar pickling where you're essentially acidifying or marinating vegetables in vinegar, which is acetic acid. So it's a different kind of acid that you're working with. And so, Lucy Norris, I, I'm sure you've encountered this, too. As I, Reading about this particular style of pickling, one of the things I started encountering right away are claims not only about how good it tastes, but that it's good for your gut or that it's probiotic, basically, right, in, in all the right. ways that, that yogurt's supposed to be. People who really are, are I hesitate to use the word, high on this kind of pickling, um, <laughs> they, they believe it, it has health benefits, right? Right. Well, I'm in Seattle, so I can use that word freely. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah, I mean, really, fermentation uh, has really taken hold, and I really learned what I know about fermentation from Sandor Katz. Uh, he's the author of Wild Fermentation. He travels all over the country. Has for many years talking about fermentation processes. Um, 
And really, you know, this whole idea of uh, the the food being preserved and staying crisp, uh, you know, and not slimy because nobody wants a slimy pickle or a soft pickle. They want it to be crisp. They want it to be fresh tasting. They want it to sort of have that sour, you know, tingly, almost effervescent sort of, you know, quality to it uh, because, you know, that's that taste is good, but it also especially what you pickle, brassicas, uh, into things like, um, you know, different types of cabbages, uh, you know, those have, you know, just study after study shows that things like pickled cabbage is actually good for, you know, fighting cancer, you know, and so there's, there's lots of different health benefits, I think, first and foremost, eating more fruits and vegetables, but if you get them in the form of pickles, it's great to eat those in moderation, especially if it has a high level of so- sodium. Uh, I love salt. I tend to like saltier pickles more than sweet pickles, but, um, you know, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's almost two types of people in the world. You either like the salty fermented sort of flavors or you like the sweet sugary sort of pickles. Um, which I'll, don't really have many health benefits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to talk to both of our pickle guys about uh, stuff that you've tried to do. I think Dan uh, used the word tri- the phrase trial and error. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, So I'll, I'll start with you, Dan, but I want to hear from Stu, too. Are there things that you've tried that you've discovered uh, are great pickling products, e- either in terms of the way that they're pickled or in terms of the actual thing that you're pickling? Uh, I should say that researching this show, I just discovered all kinds of things. There's some guys in Brooklyn who are uh, pickling stuff in whiskey, which would probably really interest just Wolfie, but uh, anyway, okay. Dan, yeah, what? Uh, tell us a little bit about your trial and error. Have you sure, discovered yeah. made any great discoveries? Yeah. Well, when I first started the business back in 2001, and I was actually living in Boston as well at that point, um, I did. I knew that I wanted to start a business making pickled vegetables using the traditional fermentation process, and I decided to start out with cucumber pickles um, because that's the most, I guess, the most common type of pickle. It seems the most marketable, but it actually um, is really one of the hardest vegetables to to ferment and really get right and keep it keep crisp. So I've probably done the most trial and error with cucumbers, just trying to get that recipe as perfect as possible. Um, but it certainly is a great vegetable to work with. Um, I would say, I mean, we make a we make and sell a vari- several different types of fermented cabbage products, different kinds of sauerkraut, a regular sauerkraut and a garlic sauerkraut and kimchi. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a reason that um, fermented cabbage is a, is a popular type of fermented vegetable. It ferments really well, um, has a fantastic flavor, and you really can do all sorts of things with it. Um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, kimchi is a traditional Korean pickle and can be a whole variety of things. But especially in the United States, it's, it's commonly made with a lot of cabbage and where you add ginger and garlic, chili pepper, um, so you can you can really do a whole lot with it. There's certainly some vegetables that have, I at least have had a lot less success with um, that might be great vinegar pickled, but don't work quite so well with fermentation. Zucchini and asparagus are, are prime examples for me. Um, what about you, Stu? In terms of what you learned or things that you tried to pickle that either were fabulous successes or maybe not so much, uh, give us a sense. Well, it's pretty much a constant uh, learning curve here with the ferment. And, yes, cucumbers, like Dan was saying, are brutal to deal with. They just are because they're always changing them grower to grower, region to region, and so forth. But out here, I was able – I have a great space that I was never able to have on the East Coast because Portland is just amazingly small business friendly. So I've been able to – 
do all sorts of other vegetables in exactly the same process that I do with the cucumbers. And I do cauliflower, and I do carrots, and I do green beans, and I do turnips, and I do asparagus in season. And uh, somehow, out of sheer luck and madness, all those vegetables seem to work with my recipe. I uh, can't really explain it beyond that they taste pretty darn good, and I sell them here, and people like it, and it just seems to work. I'm sure there are a bunch of vegetables out there that I could keep trying with, and some people bring me their their experiments with the brine. They take the brine that I make and make their own things, but it's all working. I don't know. And, and, you know, hey. Dan did a really good job explaining the science behind everything, and so did Lucy, and... I don't know. I'm just trying to make something taste good, and and uh, I don't know. People keep keep buying it. Go ahead, go ahead, Lucy. Yeah, Stu, I have a question about the the uh, your name, uh, Moonbrine, because there's a, a recipe in my book that is actually called the Full Moon Cabbage with Fresh Pomegranate Juice, and it's a recipe that a man gave me while I was in New York. He was from Latvia. And he had this whole uh, sort of superstition around the pickles. That if you make this pickled cabbage recipe uh, on the full moon, then it'll stay crisp. But if you don't, then it'll just go sour. So did you ever hear about any sort of superstitions around? And that's the reason why you named your company that? Uh, I didn't name the company that, but I've heard all sorts of superstitions. And if I could time my batches and the cucumbers coming in on the full moon, I definitely would. I don't know. I put a lot of horseradish in, fresh horseradish in, the, oh, in my yeah. pickles. And that we got out of, we, we, my brother and I were in a little dump bar in the East Village years ago, and some dude from Poland was talking to us, and this was when I was making them in my apartment with no business intent whatsoever. And the, the guy said the secret in Poland to pickles was horseradish, and he wrote it down in Polish. And I had my wife's family, actually my brother-in-law who lives, right there uh, outside Hartford, um, translate it, and it came up as horseradish. So that's sort of my weird superstition. I throw it in everything. Uh, uh, cherry leaves, too. Blind, grinding that up. But uh, I forget what your question was. Did well, I answer it? Irrespective of what her question is, we have to take a quick break. We've got a lot of ground to cover when we come back with all three of you. So hang in there. How much is that pickle in the window? After 20 years of mad science, I finally animated an eight-foot-tall pickle. You, my towering, sour friend, you are my greatest creation. Hey, uh, do you want your pickle? No, go ahead and take it. What can I say? I don't like pickles. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Katie Talarski is our executive producer, and our interns are Jackie Lauper and Jane Ashley. Greg Hill appeared in our introduction and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. For show pages, stories, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff trying to pickle a Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, Living with Multiple Sclerosis. And now, back to Colin. 
All right, we're back. We have great guests. We have seven minutes. I have four topics I want to cover. It's not going to work, but we're going to try anyway. But uh, everybody keep your answers as crisp as a pickle, as a desirable pickle. Um, Lucy Norris, one thing we didn't get into talking about the history of your involvement with pickles was the way in which, in fact, this sort of pickle-related event uh, followed just weeks after September 11th and and maybe was one of the early things that united people and lifted their spirits. Uh, Just give us a quick sense of that. Right. Yeah. The uh, Canal Street opened, oh gosh, I can't remember how many weeks it was after the the disaster. And we had already had our street permits. You know, we had already ordered our tents. And this was the New York Food Museum group that, that I was with. And uh, we already had our vendors out and, you know, Gus's was coming out and Sunshine Pickles and all these various people were already set to go. And uh, it was like, oh my gosh, should we have this event? And, uh, you know, once Canal Street opened up, we we felt like it was the right time. And, you know, we, you know, it was a rainy day. It was cloudy and kind of cold. And we were setting up our displays and our exhibit pieces and people were putting their tents up and people just started coming. We didn't charge admission that first year and um, 5,000 people showed up. And kids were parading with their pickles on sticks and people were dressed up in costumes. And, you know, just it was just a time to, you know, enjoy our New York City icon, you know, which was to me really about pickles and uh, being in the Lower East Side together and people coming together from all over the world and tasting each other's foods and and just enjoying the afternoon, and uh, it, it was a special, special day. It, it sounds it sounds very special, and a great description of that. As I say, I'm going to buzz through uh, three more topics if I can. Dan, Dan Rosenberg, very quickly, one thing we didn't talk about, Real Pickles in Greenfield, Massachusetts, is you're trying to run the company on green energy, right? Can you give us a, a, a quick uh, description of that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, in a way, I really got into this business, got into pickling from kind of an activist perspective, wanting to help change the food system in a positive way, organic, make it more local and regional, and also thinking a lot about the whole range of environmental issues and climate change. And so certainly from the outset, we've done whatever we've, we've been able to, to, to minimize our, our carbon footprint and, and waste as little as possible. Um, we started out our business in an incubator kitchen, and then five years ago we, we bought our own building, and um, we made it as energy efficient as we possibly could. We, uh, we have a big walk-in cooler that we use to store our vegetables, but we have an outside air system that draws in cold air during the winter months to, to keep the cooler cold without using electricity to do it. And, um, and then a couple of years ago, we went 100% solar powered. So we've got a big portion of our roof covered with solar panels, and that, that runs our walk-in cooler and, our, and all of our equipment and, and the lights. So we're really excited about that part. It's a low-carbon footprint. All right, here's my third topic. Stu Gollum, I think a lot of people, um, their relationship with a jar of pickles is you eat the pickles, you dump out the stuff the pickles were in. But it's, I, 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 my sense is that there are some people who make use of pickle brine as a beverage and maybe even for, for specific reasons. Is there anything you can tell me about that? Uh, you got it. And uh, two quick things. Lucy, I was at that first pickle event. I remember it well, very well. Um, in New York oh. City, I was living. That's when I was still living there. Um, Moonbrine was born out of moonshine. Had nothing to do with that, because our recipe we thought was under the radar, backwoods secret, sort of going back to Tim Baker's not telling any secrets. So that's where Moonbrine came from. The brine all along since we started this business has always been pushed as a drink, a mixer, a marinade, 
We have had recipes on the website. I drink it all the time. I have people that come to my shop and just get the brine. It works for all different things and just tastes really good, and I, it just works. So when you say I, works again, for this, work. was a, this was just miraculous. I, we didn't plan any of this. It just sort of <laughs> happened, and the brine works. So, we- you know, when you say it works for all kinds of different things, well, I would imagine, first of all, athletes might drink it in situations where their sodium's gone way down, which is a problem anytime you run and sweat and stuff like that. Does it, quote-unquote, work for other things? I imagine it would be a good martini additive. Yeah, Bloody it's a Mary's great too. martini or Bloody Mary <laughs> helper. Yeah, I do have athletes drink it. I do have people just drink it who like salty liquid. and But it makes really good marinade to just whether you're into – throw in other vegetables in or meat or chicken or anything and letting it sit 24 hours or your Thanksgiving turkey. I, I use it for everything. I have people who come to me and use it for everything, and it just it, it just tastes really good. I don't know. It's just uh, fortuitous. What can I say? All right. I dare not ask another question. Instead, I think what I, I do instead is I thank all of you. Uh, Sue Shepard we talked to earlier, but we've been talking to Lucy Norris. Uh, her book is Pickled. Preserving a word, a World of Tastes and Traditions. She also runs the blog brinylife.wordpress.com. She's been joining us from KUOW in Seattle. On the phone, we've been talking to Stu Gollum, the owner and pickle maker of Moonbrine in Portlandia, and Dan Rosenberg, who's the owner of Real Pickles in Greenfield, Massachusetts. You can find uh, some of their products in some stores. Probably get on their website. It's the best way to find out how to get some of the pickles you've been hearing about. Some of you, of course, one of the things we didn't have time for, and I'm so sad about it, I really wanted to talk about sort of the people who either don't like pickles or think that they don't like pickles, the people who give away their pickles every day at lunch. Uh, what's that all about? I'm guessing it has something to do with imprinting, like either like a little baby duck. Either early on you imprint on the pickle or you don't. But anyway, thanks so much to Lucy, Stu, Dan, and uh, also Sue, Sue Shepard. We will be back tomorrow with our show about living with MS. It's not for the faint-hearted, it's sticky, it's tricky, just hop once you start it. The past may be sweet or be sour or late. If you pickle it up, you can taste it again. If you pickle it up, you can taste it again. If you pickle it up, you can taste it again. I'm Kyone Wolf Franken-Pickle. I'm home from work early. <laughs> You're cheating on me? Kimchi, of all people? Well, he said he wanted more spice in his life. Well, I could use a little spice in my life, too, if you want to. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm for men, Ted.